mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the Norfolk Southern Railroad Bridge has been the weak link in the Blanchard River flood mitigation plan from the start, but now it appears that's going to change. Also this morning, manned space travel grabs the headlines, especially with private companies joining the effort, but NASA also has partnerships dedicated to the scientific exploration of many more unknown wonders of the universe. Happening around town, you can burn off a few calories before your family feast next week with the annual Turkey Trot 5K on Thanksgiving morning. We get details. And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, politicians use new media to promote their agenda so we the people can harness that same technology to drive the national discourse. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, November 18th, 2021. We are one week away from Thanksgiving, one week away from Thanksgiving and the uh, big travel season begins. And uh, the big story is now it looks like it's going to be a stormy Thanksgiving in the Northeast and Midwest. The National Weather Service is predicting a large scale weather pattern will extend into midweek next week. A cold front sweeping across the Midwest into the Northeast on Sunday to Monday with rain expected across much of the eastern U.S. Forecasters say some snow is expected as well as colder air arrives behind the storm and gusty winds will develop in the wake of the storm exiting New England, but they should not have a dramatic impact on travel. Uh, The west and parts of the high plains will see variable but generally above normal temperatures through Tuesday, but even minor weather issues could mean more traffic and delays Uh, For both air and road travel, AAA predicting more than 53 million people will travel for Thanksgiving this year. That is 13% more than last. And as we were mentioning a few days ago, an 80% jump in air travel. So any kind of weather issues could just make it a complete nightmare at the airports. I saw the uh, graphic yesterday of this predicted storm. Um... Well, they're not really calling it a scorn. They're just calling it a large-scale weather event. But I saw the graphic, the uh, national graphic, and um, predicted the path. And uh, it said something to the effect of um, nasty weather or something. And that those words were superimposed right on top of the state of Ohio. <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, great. It's going to be uh, wonderful travel conditions for Thanksgiving. So just uh, be prepared for that. But here is some good news as we head into the Christmas shopping season. And I know a lot of folks have already started their Christmas shopping because of the um, uh, admonishments that we need to start early because of supply chain shortages and all of that may be harder to get what you are looking for for Christmas. So a lot of people have started very early and also... The prevailing theory is there are going to be fewer great deals on things this year because supply and demand. Supply is lower. Demand is going to be high. So retailers aren't going to have to discount as much. Well, as it turns out, maybe we have been duped. Might not have to worry so much about all of those warnings to get your Christmas shopping done early because of product shortages. Big retailers are now saying that they planned ahead and did what they needed to do to be ready to have enough stock for the holidays, which, of course, for retailers, the most important time of the year. And basically, now the retailers are saying we saw this coming. Target reported yesterday that it is that its inventory at the end of the third quarter was actually 17.6 percent higher than last year. Walmart's inventory up 11.5 percent. In the third quarter over last year and the CEO of TJX, which owns TJ Maxx, Marshalls and Home Goods, said it is in an excellent inventory position. That's a quote, an excellent inventory position. They say most of the product needed for the holiday season is either on hand or scheduled to arrive at stores and online in time for the holidays. So all of that, we were talking about supply chain shortages and things You may not be able to get at the stores, going to have to shop earlier. You might get uh, left out and pay in full prices. You're just going to have to bite the bullet and and do it. Well, forget all about that. 
Apparently, uh, that is not so much the case. I think we were had. But anyway, uh, some other uh, interesting stories. Some of the uh, most important first things you need to know. The most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Starbucks Red Cup Day is today. Uh, the coffee chain is giving away free limited edition reusable red cups to customers who, who order a handcrafted holiday or fall beverage at participating U.S. stores. The uh, yeah, it's Red Cup Day at Starbucks. The freebie is available while supplies last. This year's reusable cup is made with 50% recycled content in honor of the chain's 50th anniversary. <laughs> okay. It features classic holiday red with playful swirls of shimmering ribbon dancing against a starry sky. So get to Starbucks today. It's Red Cup Day. It's big news. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Scientific research that uh, I don't know what. Well, actually, I do know what inspired this research because it says in the story. But when I first saw the headline. In the first uh, opening lines of the story, I thought, why in the world would they they be studying this? But uh, researchers from the Georgia Institute of Technology have found that finger snapping is the fastest acceleration that the human body is able to produce. The fastest, fastest acceleration of any part of the body that the human body is able to produce. Finger snapping. Just like, I mean, it may seem, it seems... Like such a simple thing and not necessarily impressive. Snap your fingers. But this study says it is pretty doggone impressive. The tip of the clicked digit in a finger snap is reaches the palm in just seven milliseconds. <laughs> they measured this. Um, that the 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 finger that you are snapping goes from the edge of your thumb right here, the edge of your thumb to your palm where it makes that click in seven milliseconds. Fastest, fastest acceleration of any part of the body. Now, again, initially when I read this, I thought that's interesting, but it, it must have been a really slow day at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Why would they study this, you ask? Because that was my first uh uh, question is <laughs> what why did they measure this um the findings they say not only show how finger snapping works from a perspective of physics uh but it also may help develop more versatile prosthetics well there you go so there is a useful purpose uh, for this more versatile more useful more lifelike prosthetics may be able to be created out of this knowledge. I say the right amount of friction is key for storing up energy for a good snap. Well, that's kind of interesting. And, and uh, if it leads to you know more uh, helpful and lifelike prosthetics, I think that's interesting. That's worth it, I guess. Um, although maybe the whole thing started just because they were bored. <laughs> and then they figured out, oh, actually, we could maybe use this. We could maybe put this to good use as knowledge and uh circling back to uh, thanksgiving which is now one week away you know the day after thanksgiving we call it black friday known as one of the busiest shopping days of the year but it has a different name among one industry plumbers call it brown friday <laughs> and it is usually their busiest day of the year for plumbing repair and sewer and drain cleaning services in the U.S. This is according to Roto-Rooter. I thought this was really interesting. You something to keep in mind uh, for next week as we head toward Thanksgiving. Meal preparation and kitchen cleanup associated with the, uh, with the holiday wreaks havoc on sinks and garbage disposals while post-meal waste loads up toilets and sewers, creating lots of work for plumbers. Many Thanksgiving hosts also have overnight guests who take showers and baths and flush toilets and might even do a laundry load or two. 
all of this extra strain on the plumbing system is like the proverbial last straw that breaks a camel's back, says the sewer and drain cleaning service. As a prevention against these problems, Roto-Rooter warns against pouring grease, turkey droppings, uh, turkey droppings, turkey drippings, or turkey droppings, but turkey drippings, grease, uh, or cooking oil down drains. Don't do that. That, is, that can create problems. Uh, potato peels or any kind of um, uh, starchy food, potatoes, pasta, rice, you don't want to put those down the disposal because uh, they tend to expand when they get wet, and that can cause clogs. I, I, I give you that ex- advice from experience. Unfortunately, I've had that happen. Um, poultry skins, bones uh, also contribute to the problem. So all of these things, put them down the garbage disposal is a big no-no. Uh, putting a plunger in guests' bathrooms to save guests the embarrassment of asking for one is a good idea and uh, try to spread out your showers and laundry loads so you kind of uh, instead of doing all of that at once and kind of uh, spread that out and uh, equalize the load on the system as it were so some of the things that you can do to avoid problems on what plumbers call brown friday (laughs) hey this is important stuff to know, and that's the uh, that's the goal. We want to make sure that we start with the most important things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, cloudy early today, then becoming partly sunny, a high of 43, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 28. A Finley Police Department canine apprehended a man who was stealing from a convenience store. Police arrived at the Casey's on North Main Street to find the suspect, a 53-year-old man from Toledo, climbing out of the broken glass door. He was ordered to stop, but he ignored the officer's commands. The officer deployed his canine partner, who quickly apprehended the suspect. Police say the man was in possession of more than $5,000 worth of stolen cigarettes. Get more on our website. AAA Ohio says Thanksgiving travel this year will rebound to near pre-pandemic levels. When will the roads be the busiest? Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, in the afternoon and evening is going to be the busiest time for travel. Also coming home from Thanksgiving on Sunday afternoon, going to be very busy. AAA's Kimberly Schwinn says more people feel safer going to see family and friends this year. That's why they expect more people to be out on the roads. She says traveling by car will cost more than last year with gas prices at a seven-year high. The baseball team formerly known as the Cleveland Indians has struck a deal to end a lawsuit over their new name. The team can now use the name Guardians after striking a deal with the women's roller derby team that has used the name since 2013. In a joint statement, the teams say both will use the name after an amicable resolution of the lawsuit. Terms of the agreement were not released. The baseball team still has not officially changed its public branding or made new gear available. Now with this lawsuit settled, that may be the next step. Dave James, I went in news. Pieology has opened a location in Findlay. The restaurant features custom-made pizzas made with high-quality ingredients. Jared Hartman and Amy Hartman are the owners. Jared is also co-owner of Main Street Deli and the Main Street Deli Bar and Arcade. The new Pieology will be holding a grand opening charity fundraiser with 20% of the proceeds going to the city mission of Findlay. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Now our cover story this morning, the Norfolk Southern Railroad Bridge has been kind of a a thorn in the side or a a weak link in the chain uh, from the really the very start when you talk about Blanchard River flood mitigation plans. Now it appears that is going to change thanks to a a big federal grant. Project Manager Steve Wilson is uh, with us uh, this morning. And like we said uh, before, it's kind of like the the old saying, uh, chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And it seems like this is something that has been been talked about from the very beginning and yet 
it's almost one of the last things to actually get addressed. What what made this so complicated to actually get addressed and be and a finalized firm part of this plan? Uh, the biggest problem has been working with the railroad and working through their processes and getting uh, plans approved through them. Uh, with the pandemic and everything else that's been going on, it's just taken a long time to get through their process. And um, this grant will certainly help speed up that process. So has it been the fact that, you know, it's kind of like a third-party private entity or that they're not uh, locally based uh, or a combination of both? Combination of both. Yeah. Um, they Just in talking with the Norfolk Southern people, they've had some people that have, have left the organization, so we've had mm. a lot of turnover in the, the reviewers. Uh, they have over 700 bridges that they're looking at on an annual basis. So Wow. Um, well, that was the other thing, too, because I thought, you know, this is this bridge is, what, close to 100 years old? It's over like 100 years yeah. old. Yeah. So you would think that that would be something that they would be looking at replacing anyway. They should be. But yeah. uh, in their mind, it's still in decent condition. And uh, that track does not get that much traffic. So it's not as so high, not a a high priority, priority yeah. for the railroad. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly a high priority for the community um, that – Opening under the the bridge is is pretty narrow, and the the embankment creates essentially a dam across the floodplain. Yeah, so let's talk about for those who are not uh, you know intimately familiar with how this impacts uh, flooding. I mean, you've got a, a a bridge that spans a waterway. It's not uncommon for there to be pylons holding up that bridge and so on. So, what makes this such a problem so problematic? Yeah, with the it? the biggest problem is the uh, the original bridge. The abutments were actually put in right at the stream bank and not set back from the stream bank to give a bigger opening. So it's a, a smaller opening than we would hope for, but it was built a hundred years ago when there wasn't as much of a population in Finley. So mm-hmm. probably not as big a concern back then. But So now what then do you have uh, uh, plans for what a reconstructed bridge should look like that will make, that will alleviate the problem? Right. Um, the current span is about 150 feet. The new bridge will be a 300-foot span. Wow. So uh, considerably expanding the opening. And uh, this will be an extension of the, the benching project uh, that um, was performed uh, downstream of the uh, the Norfolk Southern Bridge. And then we hope to continue that benching uh, further to the east all the way to the CSX Railroad tracks uh, east of Main Street. So this again, making this happen, or really the uh, the the final push to make this happen, is this big grant, and that will cover what about eighty percent of the over eighty percent of the construction cost of the bridge project, and then the remainder will come from local match. Uh, we're hoping to get the railroad to contribute some towards it. Uh, okay. Otherwise, it'll come from the. Uh, County Commissioner's Flood Mitigation Fund, and the and that fund has the uh, funds to to cover that because again that yes. was one I remember uh, several months if not a year ago when we talked about you know the the uh, sales tax earmarked for that had come off and now right. you've got the money that you've got and that's pretty much uh, pretty we, much it. We still have about eight million dollars okay uh, unencumbered in the fund, mm-hmm. uh, so we're we're able to uh, uh, accomplish the bridge project plus the additional benching project uh, further east of the, of the railroad bridge. So a lot of things going on uh, with this uh, with this project. And, and you mentioned before we went on the air, uh, looking at uh, wrapping up a couple of projects in Ottawa. Sometimes we forget that this is more than just uh, a Findlay or even Hancock County right. project. Yeah, when this started back after the 2007 flood, there was a, a study by the Corps of Engineers that looked at the whole Blanchard River watershed. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Ottawa fortunately received an $8 million grant from the state. Uh, we completed two projects over there, a diversion channel and a, a road improvement. Uh, multiple projects here in Finlay, not just looking at flood mitigation, but also transportation improvements. Just finished the Martin Luther King Parkway. Right. That gives us another way to get back and forth across the river during a flood event. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a low spot on uh, Route 224 just west of I-75 that we raised up. Uh, in coordination with ODOT and their resurfacing projects. So uh, just looking at multiple aspects. It's not just yeah. uh, flood mitigation projects. It's uh, purchase and acquisition of properties, mm-hmm. removing things that can be damaged. So that's a three-pronged approach, I guess, Yeah, we look at it. And as far as the uh, mitigation aspect of it, you mentioned the benching, uh, which has been going on, uh, the uh, uh, 
retention uh, basin, the flood right. basin, uh, that uh, project has been uh, approved now as part of the overall plan. Yes. So with the Norfolk Southern Railway Bridge, the basin project, would those be going on pretty much at the same time uh, when they start? Probably or? not. Uh, probably the railroad bridge. Uh, the good news is we got a grant. The bad news is we have to deal with federal paperwork. Uh, so uh, <laughs> There is always that. There is always that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, when I was a county engineer, we went through several federal projects, so I'm familiar with the process. Um, but it could be uh, nine months to a year till we actually get construction on the railroad bridge. It's probably going to be a little longer than that uh, for the uh, basin project. Uh, we've received two $15 million grants towards the basin project, but we uh, are probably going to need another $30 million. Uh, so we'll be going back to the General Assembly uh, next year to, uh, to make another ask. And uh, so it may be uh, 2023 until something gets started construction-wise on that project. For that, you you actually uh, need to have all of the funding secured before that starts, yes. right? Yeah, because before we can light a contract. Yeah, right. You don't want to start it and then run out of money, for, Correct. for sure. Correct, absolutely. Um, so all of this, and, and again, it was reported that the, that the bridge project itself, the railroad bridge project itself, um, would lower the, uh, the flooding... Uh, in a major flood downtown by something like a half a foot all right. by itself. Right. So altogether, when all of this is uh, completed, how much have we reduced? About three feet at, at Main Street during a major flood event. And uh, uh, I think people focus too much on what happened in 2007 and how much uh, relief we'll get from that. Uh, the bigger impact is in the smaller events. You will not see near... The, uh, the amount of flooding that we've had in the past just because we've increased the capacity, carrying capacity of the river by uh, removing some of the stuff that's in the floodplain and uh, increasing the opening on that, that railroad bridge. And that's uh, an important uh, part of that, too, because those smaller events are certainly much more frequent. Absolutely. And we've already ste- seen some of the benefits right. uh, in events yeah, that would have created problems that are no longer. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all anecdotal, but I've had several people say that if we'd have got that much room and had water in my basement, I didn't have water in my basement. And if if they think it's helped, uh, I'll I'll take that. <laughs> so uh, again, with the uh, with the bridge project, uh, kind of lay out the uh, the timeline here for this uh, latest uh, development. Where um, at this point, I'm just guesstimating. Uh, we should have the uh, final bridge plans complete. Uh, sometime in the first half of the year, uh, we've submitted uh, the 60% plans, and that, those are under review. Uh, and we'll turn around the 100% plans quite shortly after that. Uh, so uh, should be able to go out to bid, I would think, sometime in the middle of the year uh, and hopefully be under construction uh, in the fall. And um, then that would take how long? How construction probably would take three how or long? four months okay. uh, is the current, current time frame. Uh, they're still trying to figure out exactly the method uh, uh, the last thing I saw, they were going to basically replace the bridge in the same location. Now, how they're going to do that, I'm I'm not a railroad bridge expert, but mm-hmm. uh, apparently they have people that know how to do that. So it'll be an interesting uh, construction process. That will be that process will be uh, interesting too, because again, you're not dealing like as opposed to the. Martin Luther King Parkway, where it was all you know local. I mean, you're doing this all with the people that you know. Again, sure. because you've got the railroad involved, you're going to have a lot of right, uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, as it were. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, but ideally, maybe by the end of next year, early 2023, that should, should be, be done. Completed. Yes. Terrific stuff. Again, uh, Steve Wilson, project manager. The Blanchard River Flood Mitigation uh, Project, we've got a link up on our webpage, incidentally, for more information about this, uh, uh, about the entire project, but especially uh, with respect to the uh, Norfolk, Norfolk Southern Railroad Bridge, finally uh, actually becoming a firm part of the uh, uh, of the flood mitigation plan. Steve, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate hey, it. Glad to do it. You know, here in a few weeks, when we start to look back on the major news events of 2021, among those that this year will be remembered for is the heating up of the private space race. 
and companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and launching billionaires into space. This was the year of launching billionaires into space. And, of course, all of these are uh, collaborative efforts with uh, NASA, which ultimately uh, the goal is to return manned space travel uh, to the uh, to the moon, maybe beyond going to Mars someday in the not too distant future. And that's not the only thing that NASA is collaborating with uh, private and uh, uh, you know, other researchers outside of the NASA environment. I saw this on the uh, Newswire, incidentally. Researchers at Vanderbilt University say they are working with NASA engineers on developing airborne taxi cabs. <laughs> you thought sending billionaires into space was kind of weird. How about this? Uh, developing airborne taxi cabs. A Vanderbilt consu- uh, computer science professor says they hope to create vehicles called octocopters, that will take off and land vertically and can move six to eight people. So uh, airborne people movers. Vanderbilt is one of several universities involved in the two and a half million dollar project. They say they could have prototypes ready for testing in the next five years. And on the uh, on a much more serious note, a new NASA mission set to launch next month is going to allow astronomers to discover for the first time the hidden details of some of the most exotic astronomical objects in our universe. Uh, It is the IXPE, or IXPE, mission, the first dedicated to observing polarized X-rays from things like neutron stars and supermassive black holes. (laughs) Dr. Mackenzie Listrup is Vice President, General Manager of Civil Space for Ball Aerospace, which is part of this collaborative mission with NASA. And Dr. Listerup, what is IXPE and what is the role of Ball Aerospace in this mission? Yeah, IXPE stands for the Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer, or IXPE for short. And it's an X-ray telescope that was designed and built by NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, the Italian Space Agency, and Ball Aerospace. As you mentioned, it's designed to measure some of the most extreme and mysterious objects in the universe, uh, including, like you said, black holes, neutron stars, even the leftovers of exploded stars called supernova remnants. Now, Ball's role, we built the spacecraft, and the spacecraft is really the platform that provides the power, the communications, other systems, and it's the platform for the scientific instruments. We assembled the observatory, uh, we tested it for all of the rigors of the launch environment and the space environment, and we'll be involved in mission operations as well. I get the feeling that I am talking with someone who is way above my uh, compre- comprehension level here. Uh, I, I just feel really, really uh, dumb right now, so explain... <laughs> Uh, explain what we know about these things now, what you are hoping to discover, and why this is important. You know, the, the great thing about a lot of space science is that we all feel a bit dumb because there's a lot that we don't know, right? <laughs> a lot of this is really still unknown. Um, so for black holes, we know that they're a region of space where the gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. Now, that's been known for quite a while now. But other than that, we don't know a lot about the really extreme physics around these objects. So, you know, why do they produce so many x-rays? Why are they so powerful? Um, What are the detailed physics? How do they evolve? So that's going to teach us a lot in the ICSI mission. It's a two-year mission, and it's special because it makes uh, these polarization measurements at the same time as taking x-ray images, and that's what really gives it the power. Now... Again, this may sound like a dumb question, I'm not sure, but from a layman's perspective, again, what we know about black holes is that it has such a, uh, they have such a gravitational pull that nothing, not even light, can escape. So how do you design a spacecraft that can go and examine something like that without it getting sucked into who knows where at the same time? But we're definitely not going anywhere near one. Luckily, we can make these observations from low Earth orbit. Uh-huh. So x-rays, you know, these objects emit a lot of x-rays. That's why we're building an x-ray telescope. But you can't observe x-rays from here on the ground. So we have to send a telescope into space. So we will be orbiting around Earth, 
staring out at known objects like those neutron stars and supermassive black holes. We'll be staring at them and making these measurements over time. And the way that, that the, the uh, telescope does this, the nature of x-rays, means that on one end of this telescope, you've got these powerful mirrors that capture the, the x-ray light. And then we've got on the other end, the scientific instruments that actually do all of the, the interesting science. And those, ha those two elements have to be separated by about 13 feet. And the way that we achieve that focal length uh, is by having a kind of an origami-like boom that connects the two. Because you can't fit a spacecraft that big inside of a rocket ferry. Yeah. And so that, that boom squishes to about one foot in length while it's in the rocket then expands to about 13 feet once it's in space. Wow. So it, it sounds like the uh, spacecraft itself uh, is uh, about as uh, impressive as what it will actually be doing when it gets out there. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, it's something you have to do from space, but you don't have to be uh, in the far reaches of deep space in order to do this. Now, here's the question. There's been a lot made about NASA's joint ventures with companies like SpaceX in the area of space travel and obviously with uh, Ball Aerospace on, on things like this. And I'm wondering, uh, are missions such as this the direct benefit of these types of collaborations with private interests in that it frees up more NASA resources to kind of branch out into so many varied areas of research at once? Yeah, you know, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of talent to do these missions and a lot of different capabilities. And so NASA uses its own um, capability, but also brings in those from, you know, uh, the nonprofit sector, universities, labs, and private companies. And that industrial base, the private sector, has a lot of capacity that's really important for almost every single space mission that's launched. Because there has been some debate over the privatization of space and space travel and so on. And, and it sounds to me like this is an example of uh, information research uh, knowledge that we would not necessarily be able to glean if it were not for these types of partnerships. So this is the, this is the benefit. This is the, the big plus that we're seeing. Yes, on the science side, there have been, you know, for, for many decades, there have been these collaborations that have produced great science. Mm -hmm. We were involved, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope uh, with NASA, and, and that's another yeah. example of a good public-private partnership. Yeah, good example there uh, as well. Again, uh, Dr. Mackenzie Listrup is Vice President and General Manager of Civil Space for Ball Aerospace, part of this collaboration on the XP mission uh, involving NASA and others. And where do we get more information? information on all of this yeah, you can go to ball.com b-a-l-l.com or nasa.gov dr listrup thanks very much for taking the time we appreciate it thanks for having me we've got the link up at our webpage incidentally goodmornings.net the uh, xp mission set to launch december 9th As we mentioned, Thanksgiving is one week away, and it has become something of a Thanksgiving tradition in the Flag City. The annual Turkey Trot 5K Thanksgiving morning to benefit the Women's Resource Center. Uh, joining us uh, are in the studio Christy Montgomery from uh, the Women's Resource Center and uh, on the line Joe Distel, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, organizers and the chief uh, grand poobahs with respect to the uh, Turkey Trot 5K. As a matter of fact, uh, it's so hard to uh, nail you down and keep you from running, we actually have to have you on the line rather than in the studio, Joe, because... <laughs> getting you to stay in yeah, one place. I'm, for... I'm somewhere making my uh, trip back. Uh, it's a long uh, run from <laughs> Utah to Finley, but I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm in the right now. Are, so. are you running back from, from Utah, or is, <laughs> is that your preparation for the turkey trot? That seems uh, that seems a little much. No. It's a long enough drive. <laughs> so the uh, turkey trot 5K, first of all, uh, Joe, give us all of the uh, details on the event itself sure we are we are really excited because last year was just a you know a fiasco with everything that was going on right. with COVID, everything shut down exactly um yeah so we uh we at the last minute uh decided to do a remote uh virtual race last year which was really a bummer because that was our 10th annual right uh race 
And, uh, and so I'm kind of calling this to myself and my friends, uh, 10th plus one, That's right. uh, so, that, <laughs> so that we get that 10th anniversary running. Um, but it will be Thanksgiving morning at 9am okay. and, and, uh, same location at St. Mike's East on bright road. Um, the registration has been open for a while now. We have to, we have to shut that down, uh, Sunday night. Okay. Uh, let's see, that's the 21st. Um, and, but you are still able to register, you know, in person day of the race. The day of, and, okay. Yeah. And at the packet pickup that we're going to have at Dave's running shop. So, uh, the, as we mentioned, the event itself is a benefit for the women's resource center and Christy Montgomery, uh, is with us actually in the studio. Uh, talk a little bit about what the Women's Resource Center does just for those who maybe are not very familiar. I think we've all heard of the Women's Resource Center, but what is it exactly that you do? Absolutely. Um, so we help a lot of uh, women and families first off with unexpected pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, people it's kind who, of the primary thing. Of primary yeah. focus. Um, yeah. However, really a ton of our services go into families that currently have children and need some support either with diapering, a lot of parenting classes. We have mm-hmm. a lot of people with that. Uh, mentoring, um, any sort of thing where people just feel like they don't have support. They don't have a team around them. I mean, we all know parenting is the most difficult job, yeah. but the most rewarding. Right. So we want to fill them with some hope. We want them to feel like they aren't alone. We want to walk alongside them from from when they find out they're pregnant till whenever they need us. We have dads, grandparents, whoever is a guardian can come in and they can earn diapers. They can do parenting classes. Um, it's it's spectacular. People really enjoy it's, it's our in, team. It's interesting uh, you, you bring that up. And this is maybe something that we don't talk about often enough is the Women's Resource Center. But uh, dads and grandparents and all we of that. We help are, everybody. Anybody who has any sort of guardianship, kinship, anything, even temporary or permanent, we're here to support you and help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do uh, those in need avail themselves of your, of your services? Is it just a walk-in? You can walk in. You can call. Um, actually, we have a way, a text a text line on the, our website you mm-hmm. can get a hold of, social media. Um, everything we do is free and confidential as well. Nothing is, um, there's no cost to anything. Also, we will help anybody who is maybe out in Allen County, all sorts of counties, mm. not just Hancock County. So the fact that these services are able to be provided free of charge, that's why you need that's fundraisers such trot. as this uh, in order to that's make right. that happen. That's right. That's exactly right. It's one of our three highest fundraisers that we hold. Um, I think it's about a fourth of our budget, actually. So Wow, this are, one event. This one event. So wow. we are we are really hoping that people show up and show out this year. And uh, Joe, I would imagine that it's probably not going to be a hard sell to get people out there, especially since, as you said, couldn't do it last year, had to be a virtual uh, thing. And I think people are kind of chomping at the bit for some normalcy. So expecting a big crowd. How many folks do you usually have on a regular year? Yeah, we usually have um, it's somewhere between fourteen and fifteen hundred. Wow, you know, that was cut. That was pretty much cut in half last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we had about seven hundred last year, which we are thankful for that for a virtual event. Sure, um, but uh, but yeah, we're shooting for fifteen hundred this year, and we're at eight fifty now. And these are the days where people are like, "Oh man, I haven't signed up yet." Yeah. So um, a a timely reminder to get that done because as you mentioned the early registration cutoff is what you said Sunday right it is Sunday uh, Sunday night so we only have a few days of pre registration to go um, we were able to keep the cost down you know there's you know that dreaded supply chain thing so uh, some of our like t shirts some of our costs went up um, but it's only thirty bucks and for this kind of event on Thanksgiving morning that's it's it's well worth it. That's got to be quite a sight too to see uh, fifteen hundred turkeys uh, uh, <laughs> running around there on uh, Thanksgiving morning. I guess it's like we said uh, earlier; it's a way to burn off a few calories before your family feast. Sort of, uh, you know, take a proactive stance <laughs> right. toward Thanksgiving. 
<laughs> yeah, you don't feel uh, quite so bad about having that second piece of uh, pumpkin pie. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, how do folks sign up for this if they if they want to sign up in advance? And you mentioned yeah. you can't actually sign up uh, the day of if, you know, Thanksgiving morning you wake up and you are so motivated mm-hmm. you can come on out and, and do that. But give us mm-hmm. all of the uh, details on the uh, early registration, first of all. Sure. Um, we have a Facebook page. It's WRC Turkey Trot um, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. We also have um, Run Sign Up. It's uh, runsignup.com. Okay. And WRC Turkey Trot, you sign up directly there, and it kind of walks you through the entire steps. It's it's really quite easy. And, um, and, then... and that's the way, you know, the pre-registration is really the way to go because you're guaranteed our world famous t-shirt that way <laughs> right and and it saves uh, saves some time uh if yes. like we said uh the thanksgiving morning you wake up and you decide you do want to you haven't signed up early you can sign up um okay. at the event when does the uh in-person registration begin then thursday morning yeah, we start at 7:45 okay. um on thursday morning okay <clears throat> And then the packet pickup at Dave's, um, we're going from 11 to, shoot, Chrissy, 7 p.m. 5 or 6. I I think maybe 6 or 7 p.m. And you can sign up there as well. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah. You can sign up at Dave's. Okay. Um, And then uh, the uh, turkey trot itself begins at 9, right? Correct. 9 a.m. sharp. It's going to be a beautiful day. I can feel it. <laughs> and uh, and that should be a, a point. Hey, you're out there. You get you are hearty folk uh, out there uh, for the turkey trot. Uh, you know, regardless of uh, of the weather. But uh, here's crossing our fingers that it's going to be a, a nice uh, Thanksgiving uh, one week yep. from today. Again, all of this happening at uh, St. Michael's on uh, Bright Road, uh, the uh, East Campus on uh, on Bright Road. We have a mm-hmm. link up at our webpage for more information about the turkey trot you can get uh, more details about the work of the women's resource center as well uh joe distal christy montgomery thanks guys for being with us we appreciate it thank you chris we interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service more or less of hancock county veterans services (laughs) the perfect example there is breaking news and then there is the news that's Already broken. And this falls into that category for sure. A robber attacked a pizza shop worker in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania yesterday, making off with the shop's cash register. And the suspect was able to pull off this heist armed only with a ladle. (laughs) That was his weapon of choice, a ladle. Uh, The worker was locking up the shop around 2.30 in the morning. When two males approached him from behind and forced him back into the business, one of the men then hit the victim over the head with a ladle before making off with the entire cash register. Fortunately, the worker was not seriously hurt. No arrests have yet been made. A ladle. Guess anything can be a weapon if you know how to use it. Weird. Um, this is unusual. A naked Florida man tried to rob a liquor store in South Beach the other day. Joseph Booker was at Gulfport Liquors when he stripped down, threatened to kill everyone, and shouted, Get on the ground! Security footage shows the moment officers arrived, tackled Mr. Booker to the ground himself, and uh, placed him under arrest. Turned out he was the only one that got on the ground. (laughs) What's crazy about this story and what really caught my attention about this is the owner of the liquor store, George Zubagari, said, unfortunately, this is not a rare occurrence. It's really bad. It's every day. Really? Every day you have naked people walking in trying to rob the store? Really? Every day? Can you identify uh, the uh, suspect? I don't know. Have him take his clothes off. (laughs) Apparently, naked people is... uh, This is a disturbing trend. Police are investigating following several naked man sightings in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That would be very chilly this time of year, don't you think? Um, The suspect or suspects have been seen occasionally 
throughout the area, police uh, say they have received at least five calls about a naked guy in recent weeks. (laughs) Right now, the police go on to say they're trying to figure out (laughs) if it's just one person or if there's more than one of them. (laughs) Maybe multiple naked guys running around in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Anyone with information is asked to come forward. I just, again, the way they put that, we're just trying to figure out if it's one guy or multiple naked people running around. (laughs) Uh, Here's a little bit of advice for you. Uh, The next time you are in Europe, this is an example of what not to do. Two American tourists allegedly broke into the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum, about 530 in the morning. Uh, The Guardian newspaper reported a 24-year-old and 25-year-old were spotted by passers-by who notified police. When the cops arrived, the pair reportedly said that they were just hanging out having a beer. (laughs) Seems like a very American thing to do. Just hanging out having a beer. That's all we're doing. We're not hurting anybody. By the way, the uh, Coliseum Amphitheater closes at 4.30 in the afternoon. This was at 5.30 a.m., so a bit out of regular visiting hours. And no, they don't serve beer at the Coliseum, to the best of my knowledge. The men were fined $900. But they do have a story to tell about their vacation, I suppose. (laughs) This is why American tourists in Europe have a bad reputation. It's incidents just like this. This is why why they look down on us when we visit Europe. And finally, in the broken news this morning... A man in Fresno, you talk about a bad day. This is Hunter McKay of Fresno, California, uh, is is definitely having uh, more than just a bad day, a bad week, a bad month. Apparently, he went to uh, renew his driver's license and the DMV in California turned him down. They would not renew his license. Why? Because he's been dead since last year, at least according to their records. He says he only found out he was dead. When he was trying to get his new driver's license, what makes this story crazy is he has already has registered. He's registered two vehicles and got a temporary license since his death date. (laughs) Let him renew his license plates, but but he but he can't uh, renew his license because he's dead. Uh, Mr. McKay's alleged death certificate was actually signed by the Los Angeles County coroner, but he says he has not been to Los Angeles in years. He lives in Fresno. When he called the county, L.A. County, they had no record of his death. He certainly appears to be alive and well, and uh, both his bank and the Social Security Administration (laughs) don't have a problem. They believe he's alive and well. But he is still working on getting resurrected at the DMV. (laughs) Still working on getting resurrected at the DMV. Now, that is a bad day. Now, you know how it can be at the DMV. It can be, uh, that can be a long process. There you go. Uh, That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Spend Thanksgiving morning with WFIN and some great old-time radio entertainment. Thanksgiving laugh from Burns and Allen, Jack Benny, and Red Skelton. Also, listen to the historical docudrama featuring the sailing of the Mayflower, plus the Thanksgiving 1943 broadcast of Command Performance. This holiday presentation courtesy of Pete's Auto Service. It's an old-time radio Thanksgiving. Nine till noon, Thanksgiving Day. 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and now at 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives are coming into that time of year when things are going to be very busy. They're going to be running around uh, either doing holiday shopping, attending holiday parties, uh, going out for Thanksgiving, Christmas uh, gatherings and, and so on. And we're so we're going to be away from home quite a bit, maybe leaving our pets behind. Just about every pet owner has probably told their four legged friends Don't worry, we'll be right back, right? When you know that you're not going to be right back. Or maybe we've lied to our pets, uh, saying that we're taking them to the park when we're actually taking them to the vet. 
<laughs> you ever done that? A new survey shows people feel pretty bad about that. We feel guilty about lying to our pets. As if they could understand us anyway. 8 in 10 pet owners say they feel guilty about lying to their pets. And 7 in 10 think they think that their pets can actually tell when you are pulling their leg. <laughs> this is a non-scientific survey of 2,000 Americans sponsored by Vetster, which is an online sort of telehealth uh, platform for veterinarians. Uh, finds the most common lie that we tell our pets is to get their pet to stop playing around. Settle down. 43%. 37% lie about how much food they have left. Uh, of our own food. The uh, survey also listed other common pet-owning occurrences that make them feel bad. 59% say they feel like they uh, don't spend enough time with their pets. 58% say they feel bad for spending too little or too much money on their pets. 58% say they feel guilty when their pets are sick. 54% get blue when bad weather keeps them from exercising their dogs outside. And 53% feel guilty when they uh, kick their pets off the couch or the bed at night. <laughs> I don't feel guilty about that at all. No siree, Bob. But I do understand that sort of guilty feeling you get when you tell your pet, we'll be right back, knowing that it's going to be maybe several hours before you're going to be right back. Now to our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. Governor Gavin Newsom has been in the news quite a bit over the past several months, having recently survived a recall election where disgruntled Californians tried to oust him from office. It was a movement that really picked up steam through social media, those online channels moving people to action, which is more than a bit ironic because back in 2013, then-Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom wrote a book called Citizenville, in which he argued that if politicians can use digital media to promote their agenda, everyday citizens can also use it to drive the public discourse in the direction they want it to go. In other words, two can play at that game. Now, in 2013, this was all still relatively new, and it was a pretty radical idea. So we thought it would be interesting to revisit the concepts in that book now that we have nearly a decade of history to put it in perspective. From February of 2013, our conversation with Gavin Newsom about his book Citizenville is today's Throwback Thursday. We do a remarkable job, don't we, as politicians using these tools of technology to amplify our voices to get elected or get our cause or to get our agenda focused, but we don't have a two-way conversation. And I We're would, having still that broadcast conversation. It's time for citizens to step in and step up. And I would think that this would be a good way to start by getting the electorate, we the people, to think about leveraging this power to, powerful technology we have uh, to work for us rather than against us when it comes to setting the agenda, driving the discourse. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you know most citizens feel, I imagine like me, that we feel like things are being done to us not with us. We feel more like subjects than actual citizens. And we've been inert in the past. We have this broadcast model of governance where you vote, I decide, and then four years or two years later we come back, we try to amplify your voice, we tell you how much we love you and how much we care, we ask you for your few bucks and show up for Election Day for us, and then we turn you back off. And that process, that uh, fundamental disconnect needs to be changed, and we have to have a new division of labor where there's real active citizen participation. And in the prologue of the book, you talk about how really that question is what led to uh, to the book itself, and in it, you actually take this idea even to the next level. I was talking to Tom Freeman, the New York Times columnist, and he, he had a wonderful line. He made this point in 2005. Uh, he wrote a wonderful book talking about globalization, the world is flat. And he made the point in 2005, Facebook didn't exist, Twitter was a sound, the cloud was in the sky, 4G was a parking space, LinkedIn a prison, and Skype for most of us a typo. You think about that. None of those things existed as it exists today. Technology, this digital revolution, is flattening hierarchy. It's flattening the music industry. It's flattening the media industry. We've seen what's happened in newspapers and publishing, and it's coming now to small towns, large cities, 
coming to states and our national government as it relates to this institution of governance, this hierarchy of democracy we have, which is top-down, and I think it's no longer relevant to the world we're living in. And so I'm, this is, book is really a wake-up call to not just elected officials, but to citizens to take back their government in an enlightened way, not take it down, but have a different framework of engagement and participation. You actually envision a world where uh, all of the, and virtually all of the volume of information, the massive amount of information uh, that the government uh, bureaucracy creates is uh, pretty much available and accessible to anyone at any time. Well, think about this. You know, it was in the 1980s something remarkable happened. President Reagan actually opened up this type of data by saying that these big satellites that taxpayers had paid for, where all that information was flowing into national agencies, he opened up that data to the private sector. And as a consequence, every single person listening has been a beneficiary of that. We're able to go to the Weather Channel or get AccuWeather. We're able to go on our phones and determine what the weather patterns are for the next week or, or next day. We're able to go into our car and get GPS technology or on our smartphones. All of that because we opened up data from this vault that existed, in this case, through the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association. Just mm -hmm. consider all of that data trapped in all of these other agencies of government, not just federal agencies, not just state, but local government, at your library system, your recreation and parks department. And so that's what this movement's about, openness, transparency, putting that data up and out and allowing the third party, the private sector citizens, to utilize that data, form new connections, and five different ways of thinking and doing things. The flip side of that, of course, is to figure out how logistically uh, you could make this work. I mean, I, I think of, for example, the, the idea has been floated many, many times before uh, to uh, promote online voting uh, in elections. And there are any number of questions that come up as to how do you uh, protect the sanctity of, of the process, if you will. So I would imagine that logistically there are an awful lot of questions that would have to be answered in order to make something like this work. No, Chris, a great point. I mean, the, the issue of online voting is wildly controversial. Of course, it, it, it hit an apex in 2004 and the, the default systems. People were claiming they were being hacked and mm -hmm. manipulated. So there's no question we're going to have to work through this process. But, you know, in California, just recently, remarkable for all our, our, our effort to convince you of how we're always on the leading and cutting edge out in our state, we finally allowed online voter registration and we had over 800,000 people sign up in just the course of a few weeks. It was an extraordinary uh, example of how technology can be used in an enlightened way where it's more difficult to hack. There's not a real security concern as much there. And there's just ways to, again, use technology to amplify voices, democratize voices, have real two-way conversations, real citizen engagement, and make our lives as easy as shopping on something like Amazon. So what is the, the biggest hurdle to overcome? Is it the, the logistics, as we were mentioning, uh, of actually being able to make it work in that way? Uh, or is it uh, changing the mindset and, and getting people over the hurdle of making, especially the ingrained politicians in Washington at the state level and so on, uh, understand that, that there is a benefit here? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, great question. It, it's not just the technology and the platforms themselves. It is a cultural change. It's an attitude change. And so government officials, bureaucrats, uh, elected officials of every type need to change their behavior. And we can't accept this notion that we're having a two-way conversation with our constituents by having a town hall meeting every six months or a year where only a select few, few show up. We've got to have a more iterative, interactive engagement 24-7. Uh, and, I, you know, I come from the private sector. I've got close to 17 businesses. I have 17 businesses, close to 1,000 employees. And I learned the hard way a few years ago that this notion of a one-way conversation is dead. When I was throwing out my services uh, and just standardizing them, uh, my customers were saying, no, we want them customized to our needs. Now you take that model, and then you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles in most towns. And you say, well, geez, you know, I've got to fill out a form again? I just filled out one form. Why do I have to do it a second time? Mm -hmm. So there's this new disconnect. And so government needs to radically alter its mindset to the tools of technology and what they offer people in terms of ubiquity, access, and streamlined 
and de-siloed services. You use the example of making uh, interacting with government as simple as the way we shop uh, online through Amazon. Um, at the same time, uh, online shopping has thrown brick-and-mortar stores into sort of reevaluating their place in the retail yeah. marketplace. And I'm wondering, uh, in, in this sort of uh, future that you envision, where do traditional establishments, uh, such as the media, such as you know, traditional politicians, and the and the way that they interact with uh, with the citizenry? I mean, there are an awful lot of established uh, entities who then would have to rethink their place in the world. Yeah, I think. I mean, we're, we're starting to discover in, in, in that context that intermediaries are getting in the way, and more and more people are going peer-to-peer and bypassing this notion of disintermediation we talk about in large institutions. Uh, people don't want to ask permission uh, or ask someone else to offer an opportunity. They're trying to bypass that, and technology oftentimes allows that. So it's the contours of a whole new change. I don't think this is a cyclical change. I think, and many folks are now talking along these lines, what's happened with technology in this world brain now that's being connected, we're not just accessed online, we're accessing to each other's capacity to think and engage one another all around this world, is, is tantamount to what the printing press did in the 15th century in Europe or the 14th century in Asia. It's of that kind of power and consequence. And so we have to recognize uh, that these traditional industrial solutions are running out of gas and there's whole new contours of change and new networks being formed and new bottom-up thinking that's taking shape. And, you know, it's, for me, it's not about replacing those traditional structures exclusively. It's about meeting people halfway. It's about a hybrid system. It's about being online and connecting offline and reconnecting with our community, our neighbors, and re-engaging civically focusing on civic currency in the life of our city, the state, and nation. From February of 2013, our conversation with Gavin Newsom about his book, Citizenville. It is today's Throwback Thursday. If you want to learn more about it, check our webpage. And, of course, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, going out and making it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.